Well, welcome everyone to today's episode of The Full Life. And I'm really excited about today's episode. Uh, when we started these conversations about race and the challenges we had, especially within the church, it was always sort of my hope and dream that we could talk about understanding as we did. We could talk about some of the inner work that we had to do as we have in the last couple of weeks. But then we could really talk about practically building and modeling the multicultural model in building churches. And that is exactly what we're talking about today with some people who have been doing it, have been teaching it uh, for years. And I'm so excited to welcome them. First, let me bring in our normal, well, let me bring in everyone in the panel and then I'll, I'll say hi to first Jenny, Carolyn, and Hank. But as you see, there's three other people. So let me introduce them as well. Mark Hearn has been a pastor for more than 40 years, since 2010. He has served as the senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Duluth, Georgia, one of the most diverse counties in America. During his tenure, the church has transformed from a monolithic Anglo-American congregation to a cross-cultural community with members from 47 different countries. Welcome, Mark, to the show. Thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Next, we have another Mark, Mark Demaz. And he is the founding pastor of Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas, a multi-ethnic and economically diverse church where significant percentages of black and white Americans together with men and women from more than 30 nations walk, work, and worship God together as one. He's also the founder of the Mosaic's Global Network, a group focused on building multi-ethnic churches across America. Please welcome Mark DeMoss. Great to be with you all. Thanks so much for having me. And finally, we have Dr. Alexander Jun, and he is a professor of higher education at Azusa Pacific University, and he's also a ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church in America. He is married to Jeannie, and together they have three teenagers. Sorry to hear that, but welcome to the show. <laughs> Yeah, my prayer requests are already well known. <laughs> it's great to be here. Well, I, I think we have a wonderful panel here, so let's just get into it. First, you know, I think the first question is multicultural churches, kind of why? And I believe it's, the, you know, I believe it's on my heart to build that we should be doing this, but I think that question is real in the church, why? And is that a goal to be pursued? And why? Well, I appreciate again you all having this important program. I'm so glad to be on it with my good friend Mark Hearn and to meet all of you uh, others for the first time, or maybe we've crossed paths here and there. Uh, having said that, you asked the question why. It's certainly an important one. Uh, in 1997, in fact, I began to ask myself that same question. As I was chatting with you before the program, I was raised Jesuit Catholic, of course, taught the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. And beginning in 1997, I began to ask myself the question, if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the local church? If we know Revelation 7, 9, every nation, tribe, people, and tongue will one day uh, make up the eternal body and bride of Jesus Christ. We know that's true. Uh, and yet we see the systemic segregation of the American church uh, along the lines of color, class, and culture. Again, I began to ask myself the question, why is that? If Christ taught us to pray that what's going on up there ought to be going down down here, why is that? And of course, there's 
myriads of factors and reasons we'll probably get into today. But the single greatest reason I can tell you the why is this, the systemic segregation of the American church undermines the credibility of our gospel witness. Mm -hmm. In other words, we cannot continue to proclaim a message of God's love for all people when in fact it seems our churches only love some people. An increasingly diverse and cynical society is no longer finding credible that message of God's love for all people. Why? Because we proclaim it, we preach it from segregated pulpits and pews. I already feel that right here. Um, Alex. Yeah. Um, Why is it a goal to be pursued? Uh, everything that Mark said, I, I absolutely support. Um, part of the challenge, I think, is for us fundamentally understanding the Imago Dei, being made in God's image. Um, how do we recognize and value all the differences uh, that God has created? So that piece of diversity, if people were to think that man has created diversity, that it's some sort of liberal agenda. We are incorrect from a biblical lens. Um, man did not create diversity, God did. Yes, absolutely, and it's all over the Bible that way, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, Mark, your thoughts. Mark Hearn, <laughs> gotta get used to that. Well, I, I think it speaks to the relevance uh, of the church in, in the, the globalization of uh, America and society in general. Uh, when I moved here in 2010, my neighbors to one side of me are Malaysian Vietnamese. My neighbors to the other side of me are uh, South Asian Indian. Neighbors behind me are Korean. Neighbors across the street from me are from Zimbabwe. At the end of the cul-de-sac, there's a doctor from Puerto Rico. Across the street from them is a multi-generational family from Nigeria. Yeah. None of those people groups were present in my local church. And I knew that if we're going to be relevant in our community, we were going to have to learn how do we cross cultural barriers in order to carry the gospel to people of different languages, different cultures in our local community. And so I think that literally the next generation of people are looking uh, at is the church relevant in today's society In today's society, especially in the majority of metro areas is a very multicultural society. Uh, so we're trying to share that the next generation of our church is going to look like our community, and that's where we're headed. Co-hosts, what say ye? Hank, anyone? Sure. I mean, I think um, we've touched on the fact that God created us diverse, right? Like this isn't a liberal agenda. agenda. This is God, right? A God created diversity. Um, but I think my answer would be this is the heart of God. I mean, if you read from Genesis to Revelation, this is the heart of God. Um, a lot of times we teach people or teach little kids, you know, who left Egypt and we say the Israelites. Well, if you go a little bit digger, deeper in um, Exodus 12, you see that it wasn't just ethnic Jews. It was literally anyone who believed and chose to follow them. And if you look at it from that lens, you see that the whole Old Testament um, Jewish kingdom that set up was multicultural. You know, there's a reason we know Uriah is a Hittite. You know, there's a reason we know that the queen of Sheba, which we think is in Africa, came to visit Solomon, right? Um, and and when Israel in all its glory, right? Like what was the kingdom and the, the temple created for? It wasn't for Israel. It was my house should be a house of prayer for all the nations. So even in the Old Testament, you see a God who is fashioning a, 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 a 
a people where he wants the world. I mean, John's revelation is great, but that's the same vision that Isaiah had, that Jeremiah had. Um, this isn't something that's new. So yeah, so why? I would say because it's the heart of God and because we take our Jesus seriously and to echo Mark D's point, um, yeah, like if Jesus says on earth as it is in heaven, like that's our mandate. Like that's no longer a suggestion, right? Um, when we get to heaven, like this call looks beautiful right now. Like this is amazing. But the fact that traditionally our churches don't look like this call um, is work to do, you know? So I think that's why, because Jesus asked for it, because it's God's heart. And then because if we want to follow God and actually, you know, love him the way he loves us, then I think it's something we, we need to pursue for his glory. Um, I just want to go around with the panelists we have today. The question I want to kind of have you guys answer is just simply, um, what are your experiences then building multicultural churches or communities? Well, our situation is I inherited a, uh, 125 year old uh, Southern Baptist church uh, that was 98 and a half percent Anglo uh, when I came. And so our process was very deliberate and very slow. And part of that process was beginning to identify unreached people groups in our area and, and just to developing relationships with persons of peace who would teach me about their culture so that I could learn how best to be able to cross those cultural barriers. And then we began to also send missionaries uh, to those specific nations for the very purpose of being able to say to our local neighbors, uh, we're beginning to plant churches in India and in Nigeria and in China uh, and in Mexico uh, to be able to tell my banker who is from India, hey, I'm going to India. Anything I could get for you while I'm there or uh, and he'd ask me, why are you going? Well, we're involved in a church planning movement in India. Uh, well, why would you go to India? Uh, and so it, it, it's an obvious immediate conversation starter uh, to be able to say, hey, we care about your native homeland. And therefore, uh, we'd love to tell you about Jesus uh, right here where you are in your adopted homeland. Uh, so that was kind of a first step for us being able to introduce uh, ourselves into a multicultural community. Yeah, that's really cool. I like the idea. Then you started planting. Um, so not only reflecting your community, but going to the world. Um, Mark uh, Demaz, I think I'll, I'll go to you. Um, I know with you, it's also the local, but also the national brand or international brand with the Mosaics Network. So unlike Mark, who transitioned uh, an otherwise healthy but homogeneous church, of course, in 2001 here in Little Rock in the Urban Center, uh, we planted with intentionality a church to reflect the community reflect God's love for all people, not just some. And of course, uh, there's a general set of challenges that every healthy multi-ethnic church faces. Uh, and then of course, planting has its own, transition has its own revitalization. But having said that, uh, in the early 2000s, the handful of us that were uh, really after this, if you will, in an intentional way in the early days of what it now is a recognized and legitimate movement, uh, of God and the Holy Spirit in the 21st century, not only here in the United States, but around the Western world, uh, we identified there's probably seven markers of a healthy multi-ethnic church. We called them core commitments. In other words, if you're going to bring this about, and by the way, this one comes only comes out by prayer and fasting, right? It's a very different kind of church than uh, typically is planted, grown, or developed in the United States, uh, those being homogeneous. Uh, we identified seven, really, the need to embrace dependence, that this is a work of God and the Holy Spirit that we can't just otherwise muster up and somehow uh, make happen in our own will and effort. 
Uh, secondly, we have to be intentional. These kind do not come out apart from intentionality. We have to take intentional steps. It involves empowering diverse leaders, sharing responsible authority, equity, a health. That's why we use the term healthy multi-ethnic church. Uh, that means the structures, the uh, shared authority and responsibility uh, is shared by a group of diverse people who therefore can model uh, that witness for the congregation. Really following Acts 13.1, two of the leaders of the greatest church in the New Testament, the church at Antioch, were from Africa, one from the uh, Asia Minor, one from the Middle East, and one from the Mediterranean. So thirdly, empowering diverse leaders. Fourth, developing cross-cultural relationships. Someone said that uh, you can't have a healthy multi-ethnic church unless you first have a healthy multi-ethnic life. So we have to learn to trust and be transparent with one another, to do life together, uh, build that over time. Uh, out of that flows the fifth commitment, pursuing cross-cultural competence or cultural intelligence, uh, learning about different people groups, our motivations, our knowledge, our strategy and action to uh, incorporate, to work with, to accommodate others, not just assimilate. Uh, sixth, uh, promote a spirit of inclusion, right? You can't have a healthy multi-ethnic church unless we are actively, again, intentionally promoting a spirit of inclusion for all people, not just some people. And then lastly, of course, mobilizing for impact, the seventh core commitment. It's not ultimately about getting a bunch or a group of diverse people into the room and singing Kumbaya, right? It's ultimately to take the power and the pleasure of God that uniquely dwells in the midst and the spirit of unity and to turn it outward uh, to bless the community, to lead people to Christ, to promote the greater unity of the body, even as this call represents today, and ultimately to fulfill the Great Commission. So Alex, I know you're an elder at um, PCUSA, um, so you can talk about it with your um, church experience there or even in your community. But I am curious, you are from Azusa, which I would argue is one of the places I think God tried um, a multi-ethnic movement and that we saw some success um, before racism kind of ended that. So I don't know where you want to take it, um, yeah. whether it's your your that first generation, the second generation, or just in general, um, just answering that same question of how have you seen it built in your community as well? That's good. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm in the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA, the, the theologically more uh, conservative of the uh, Presbyterian denominations and um, historically rooted in the Southeast and trying to understand uh, the denomination, still trying to understand what it means to have a, a former moderator from California here out on the left coast uh, <laughs> and is uh, Korean American. So trying to make sense of that. Um, I appreciate what Mark was saying and I was thinking about, you know, what does it mean to have multi-ethnic community? And two thoughts that come to mind for me, it would be the idea of embracing and expecting conflict mm -hmm. and embracing empathy. Mm. And so that is sort of the unspoken, all the, the glamorous part of having multi-ethnic communities and diversity. Of course, the reality is you have more conversations about conflict and differences and misunderstanding and feeling excluded. Uh, you have more of those conversations, not less. And so churches and organizations that pray for, in this case, compositional diversity, are going to have uh, greater problems, if you will, in recognizing and wrestling with these concepts. And uh, the frustration, I think, is to say, I thought we would start singing Kumbaya because everyone was gathered. And turns out everyone's saying how racist we are or how <laughs> exclusive we've been for certain mm -hmm. groups. 
And uh, you see that in the early church in Acts, right? With the Hellenistic Jews and the, the Hebraic Jews, one group being uh, uh, denied in the daily distribution of the orphans. And so a problem arose and a conflict arose and they had to address it. And you see, uh, even in the early church, the first thing that you saw as the church was growing is conflict along ethnic, not ethnic lines. And so I think mean, that's something that we have to recognize I'm second generation Korean American born in the United States. And if someone lovingly but unintentionally came to me and said, we can't wait to go to Korea hmm. uh, to do a church work there. And I'm looking at this person and I'm like, I was born in Virginia. Why are you telling me about going to Korea? I want to know what it's like to be a second generation, third, fourth generation Asian American trying to understand a dominant culture in America. It's a very interesting next level conversation when you think of generations of, in this case, Asian Americans, right? Mm -hmm. And how do you wrestle with that? Mm -hmm. um, and so you have more nuanced, deeper types of conversations as a result of having more nuanced, deeper types of ethnic diversity. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that's part of the challenge is we, and if we haven't done this, we don't know what we don't know. And I feel like my denomination just getting into from a from a national perspective, uh, trying to understand diversity just on its face, you've got you get the different colors, but we're not ready for the different cultures. I was particularly reading um, uh, Mark Hearn's book this morning, and you know, and there's a lot about heart language. There's a lot about, and I loved your agitator analogy of the agitator of love. So when you, even when you don't know what you don't know, you know, at least lead with that, you know, because <laughs> they'll at least hear that feel the heart, uh, as I think what we were saying. It's like a marriage. You've got two people trying to live as one. And we all know that that's hard sometimes because we have to die to ourselves. And doesn't that look like Jesus right there is, is teaching us to, to die to ourselves. Because if we were all the same, one of us would be unnecessary. Right. And, um, you know, I, I am a worship pastor at a church and we are very diverse. I mean, we have people from all ages, all cultures. And it's awesome for me because I feel like I get to expand my creativity because we have to adjust to that, right? We can't just sing Kumbaya. We've got to put in some different rhythms. It's like eating a good meal. I don't want all the same things. Sometimes to get some diversity is nice, you know? But what I'd love to hear from you guys is just what do you see some of the challenges are in, in doing this? And so Mark, can we start with you, uh, Mark Hearn? Picking up on what Alex said about the complexity added into multi-generationals, uh, as well as um, Mark Damas talking about one of the core values is developing cross-cultural competence. One of the things we've done is we have what we call cross classes. And cross classes, in order to form a cross class, you have to have at least uh, three ethnic groups to begin a class. And there has to be at least 40 years between the oldest member of the class and the youngest member of the class. Mm. And therefore they're cross-generational, cross-cultural groups meeting at the foot of the cross. And so the entire intent is to be able to uh, share your perspective so that you might be able to cross cultural barriers. And we, uh, we share a cultural snack at the end and, and we talk about uh, your native homeland and, and uh, some, something about uh, your culture uh, 
that would be a nuance that we, we may not know otherwise. And we've had some extreme breakthroughs that have happened uh, in cross-class. One of my favorites is uh, uh, we were hosting cross-class in our home and uh, we had uh, two Nigerian families that were a member of cross-class that particular session, uh, one of which had just come to country and were living with us at the time. Uh, and our oldest couple that were in the class uh, were in their uh, uh, late 70s, early 80s. And First Baptist Church Duluth is the only church they'd ever been a member of. Uh, so uh, one of them was born into the church uh, uh, and the other married uh, into the church. And so uh, they've been members of the church for 60 to 80 years. And uh, there was one of these drop the mic kind of moments. Uh, she just said, said, I would have never been allowed to have been in the living room with a black family growing up. And I mean, all of us, all of a sudden, all the air gets sucked out of the room. Like, OK, what's going to be the next response? Yeah. And this Nigerian gentleman stood up off the couch, walked across the room and embraced her. And that embrace spoke more volumes than anything else I could have taught that night or anyone else could have taught that night. They now sit in the same section at church. And I have watched that embrace uh, reenacted every single Sunday almost Mm -hmm. since that time. Uh, so w- we connect it across cultural, uh, across uh, across generational boundaries, all in a one moment kind of way. Uh, but I, I'll, I'll share this as a plug. One of the things that we used very uh, uh, when we just begun those classes uh, was a book by Mark DeMoz entitled uh, Multi-Ethnic Conversations. Uh, and it allowed us to begin the conversations across those cultural barriers and across those generational barriers uh, that began to lay, tear down the walls that existed and begin the process of becoming one. You know, Mark's talking about what he's done. I've been to uh, First Baptist Duluth. He's done an outstanding job of transitioning that church and not just bringing uh, color into the pews, but structural diversity, equity inclusion. He's just done an outstanding job. And I've seen the benefit of a curriculum like multi-ethnic conversations that help uh, diverse people in his church embrace unity, oneness, and yet respectful of uh, the differences. I actually wrote a book, uh, my second book, Leading a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Church, which formerly was called uh, Ethnic Blends. Uh, But this book actually addressed that very question. I listed seven challenges that uh, people pursuing the multi-ethnic vision for their churches face. And uh, listed. Of course, there's personal challenges, right? Uh, you get misunderstood, you get misaligned, you uh, people misrepresent what it is you're doing. And so there's a personal cost that is involved. Obviously, the theological challenges, people want to know this isn't about uh, political correctness or secular diversity. Again, as Alex was talking about, this is a theologically grounded vision. And by the way, uh, we can, in fact, talk about God's heart for all people cover to cover with the Bible, but I have found for more than 20 years, if we don't take people to the ecclesiology of the New Testament, it's too easy for them to embrace or to look away and to say, well, that was then, this is now, or to see diversity in the Old Testament as uh, as descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive for the way we're to do it in the church. In other words, they would say it's nice, but not necessary. No, that's not true. New Testament theology teaches us that wherever possible, we're to pursue the unity of the church for the uh, uh, sake of the gospel, 
reflect our community. So personal theological, of course, philosophical, even on this call. I know there's Catholic, there's PCA, by the way, my good friend, Jonathan Seda, used to be on our board PCA guy. So yeah, you know, Alex, I, I know the PCA and, and, and what's going on there, had some hand in, in some of the work there. But the idea is to bring the vision through your philosophy, not to your philosophy. So that becomes a challenge. Um, what is the philosophy of your church? Are you mainline, non-denominational? Is it Baptist? Is it Methodist, Presbyterian? So the trick of weaving this vision through the philosophy of ministry of that church, of course, there's many practical challenges uh, that we could talk about, relational, spiritual challenges, by the way, Ephesians chapter six, right? Uh, this is the greatest tool of the devil is the vision. Uh, in fact, Paul teaches us it's not about flesh and blood, right? The color of a person's skin or their cultural heritage, which devolves to past experience, personality, or preferences, but rather it is the devil who seeks to divide and conquer us along the lines of race, class, and culture. And so there is definitely a spiritual challenge. This is like walking up to the gates of hell and giving the devil the bird. I mean, that's what you say, saying, not on my watch, this won't happen. And so tremendous spiritual attack and pressure in this type of work. And then I'd add one more. I, I didn't mention cross-cultural. That was the seventh challenge, but I uh, have since added one more, of course, not in that book, 2010. Uh, but then there's a financial challenge. Uh, and of course, every church is facing financial challenge right now, and that's not going to go away. I wrote a book recently called The Coming Revolution in Church Economics, Why Tithes and Offerings Are No Longer Enough. Every church is facing this, but particularly when you're planting, growing, developing healthy multi-ethnic churches in the urban center, it often, the more people that join your church, it costs you money. And that's a very different model than the American church. And so there is a funding challenge, a financial challenge, and in my book's Disruption and the Coming Revolution of Church Economics, we deal with that, how you can learn to leverage the assets of a church to bless the community, but at the same time generate sustainable income to supplement tithes and offerings. And that's the future, not only for multi-ethnic churches, but for every church in this country. Alex, you had said something earlier that really hit me hard, and that was just that we need to learn how to embrace conflict. And I think if you could just talk about that a little bit more, I think there's pastors and there's people out there in leadership that how do they learn to embrace that conflict? That's part of the challenge. Part of the challenge of a long-term, lasting, loving relationship is working through conflict, not the absence of conflict. I'll give you a brief story. I lived in Cambodia. Uh, we were doing mission work in Cambodia for a few years, and our concern at the time was, um, well, we want to make sure that we can demonstrate that we are a good, loving Christian family as uh, missionaries. And uh, my fundamental misunderstanding of that was we can't show them that we fight. <laughs> Um, and the reality was uh, very quickly realized that it's good for a watching world to see Christian brothers and sisters work through conflict. The world either thinks we have to be peace lovers, yes. not peacemakers, or we're going to cancel each other. Hmm. And in the cancel culture we live in, what is embedded in our relationships, especially in cross-cultural relationships, mm -hmm. is conflict. And so for us to demonstrate this is how we work through our conflicts. We don't badmouth each other. We don't send ad hominem attacks toward each other on social media or in person. We don't cancel each other. The right answer is we lead with confession. If someone says something you did offended me, rather than doubling down to say that's not what I meant, uh, that was not my intention, 
and we embrace the impact and we say, I am so sorry, please tell me what I did. Where, where, where did I go wrong in my thinking and or my action? Please forgive me. I want to repent of that and I want to learn from this. Man. That is fundamentally missing in our interactions as Christians. And how powerful is this? Because this is the fundamental part of being a Christian is learning how to forgive. And yet we're not seeing it lived out. And so we get into marriages and everything else. And we're like, well, what do we do? Because everything's supposed to be perfect. Right. But if we could see it lived out, how powerful would that be? I think, yeah. So even our language. And I think that like Jesus dealt with conflict all the time. But like even that language that we use where two or three are gathered, the heart of that is in conflict, which I think helps us then to to one know that God is there but then also to know that like God wants us to be able to love each other and to grow together and sometimes conflict can help us do that wow. and, and doesn't it say in the Old Testament about uh, before you come before the altar of the Lord you reconcile with others and so this is a constant reminder for us every Sunday week in week out that we can't have conflict um, unresolved. And so, you know, part of the challenge for us to address it, I, I said this recently that um, my prayer has been, Lord, help me to break bread with, not break fellowship with people mm -hmm. I disagree with. Mm -hmm. So good. So, so good. It's interesting you said that. I actually had a conversation about this with someone, a family member recently, um, who was, we were talking about how our family, we were kind of raised to avoid conflict, you know, just shut it down, say you're sorry, let's move on. And she was saying, you know, is that always the best thing that we still maybe hold on to something if we're not talking about it? And the concern is if we get into it, we'll, we'll cancel, like you said, you know, that cancel culture. Well, what I found was interesting when we lived in Israel, we would sit around Shabbat tables, dinner tables uh, with people. And we were, you know, we were the Christians that were there, but we would always be invited to Orthodox Shabbat dinners and, and uh, you know, in different homes. It wasn't that same kind of conflict where you think they won't talk. And one of the things that I absolutely was shaken, but in a good way by, um, is the fact that they would have arguments vehemently angry arguments around the table about whatever subject it was that they were not agreeing on. I mean, it would be super intense and they would get like this and Christians, why do you think Jesus picked up a pork chop and started eating, you know, and getting like, and, and, and I would be, my, my, you know, my would go back and be like, oh God, Brian, should we leave? Like, this is awkward. And, and, and I, I remember one of these dinners and it was like that intense. And then afterwards the guy says, Oh, this was such a great conversation. Who wants to dance? I love you, brother. And they would hug. And I was like, what just mm -hmm. happened? Because it was so foreign to our concept. Mm -hmm. If we're fighting, we don't like each other. If we're fighting, I don't agree with you. And I don't want to be with you. And I think it's so healthy. And I know that's not necessarily what this conversation was about. But I think that's such a powerful thing right now in our world where we are doing a very bad job. Yes. From uh, me, it was very much with what happened on the day of Pentecost, which if you think about what happened on the day of Pentecost, what did they do? They started speaking in different tongues, different languages. It was multicultural in that moment. And the spirit gave them an ability to, to bind, you know, bind together through the multicultural. Um, and so that's what I think about. I always think about that scripture um, as a, my example of multicultural church. But I'm curious if there's any specific 
scriptures or passages in the Bible that you sort of built your foundation on? Like, okay, guys, this is the picture. This is where we're going to go with this biblical foundation. Um, Mark, why do you, Mark D, okay. you want to start with us? <laughs> yeah, sure. And as Mark knows, we've talked about it many times, but um, there's really three foundational pillars in the New Testament upon which the theology uh, compels us, demands of us to build healthy multi-ethnic churches. Uh, and I'll give those to you in a moment. But before I do, I don't want to forget this. Number one, uh, nearly 80% of churches throughout the United States today uh, uh, remain stubbornly segregated, failing to have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership. Churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they're in and 20 times more segregated than nearby public schools. And even though there may be diversity in the pews, uh, that doesn't mean there's structural equity, uh, right. structural diversity and shared responsible authority. And no one has measured that. It's really impossible to measure that uh, or very difficult, I should say. And sociologists have not tackled that yet. This was a problem in the first century. Mm -hmm. It remains a problem in the 21st. And so Acts 1.8 is a repetition of Matthew 28. It's the call to go into all the world. Mm -hmm. Then Luke is going to describe like a crescendo. A couple of you are worship leaders and musicians. I am myself. It's like a single note is played in the beginning of Acts, Acts 1.8. And over time, a crescendo of music yeah. as this gospel goes yeah. forth uh, from a single people group to an entire world through the Roman uh, roads and Paul being in Rome, etc. So Acts 2 is really just the opening salve. There's a note in Acts 1.8. There's a couple instruments jump in in Acts 2, but you're not even biblical till you're Acts 11, Acts 13, Acts 16. So Antioch is actually the church you should model yourself after. Acts 11, it's everything you'd want to be. It's mega missional, multi-site, and multi-ethnic. It's the first time that diverse men and women, Jews and Gentiles specifically, willed themselves to walk, work, and worship God together as one. And it's really at Antioch that you see the vision of the church come to life, which is the first church to take up a collection uh, for others, not for themselves, Antioch, which is the church, the first church to send missionaries to the world, Antioch. Acts 15, of course, the Jerusalem Council has to deal with what Paul's doing on. That guy's a disruptor out there. Samaritans are getting, uh, you know, Samaritans, of course, uh, with Philip and later on others. The three pillars of theology, and I won't explain them, I'll just list them. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, Christ envisions that the church would be, uh, again, healthy, multi-ethnic, economically diverse uh, church, John chapter 17. He prays that we, those who come after the disciples who believe in him through their word, through his word ultimately, would be one so that the world would know God's love and believe. The greatest evangelistic tool given to the church is not bring Billy Graham to your city, God rest his soul, or share the four spiritual laws on the beach. It's to be one. And then the world would recognize that God loves all people. And the result would be they would give their lives to Christ. Christ envisions the multi-ethnic church on the night before he dies, John 17, 20 through 21, uh, or 20, uh, chapter 20, verses uh, 20 through 23. Uh, I, I already mentioned Acts chapter 11, Acts 13, the church at Antioch. Here Luke describes a multi-ethnic church, the model church in action. And ultimately, Paul prescribes uh, healthy multi-ethnic churches throughout his life and writings, the book of Ephesians, Romans, Galatians, uh, Colossians, and the first and second Corinthians, everything that Paul does, everything he writes, everything he lives for and ultimately dies for in Acts chapter 22 is called his gospel, Romans 16, 25. May God establish you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, his gospel, Ephesians 3, 6, that Gentiles, not just Jews, but Gentiles are to be included in this thing called salvation included in this thing called the church and ultimately including in the coming kingdom of God. 
Um, as much as we say that these are biblical mandates, God's people always fall short mm -hmm. in, in following through on what God calls us to do. And so uh, normally what happens is a sin gets in the way, this side of heaven, this side of glory, uh, sin regularly um, messes everything up for us. And so we start convoluting biblical practices with our own um, identity. And so part of the challenge in the North American church or the church here in the United States is it's very difficult not to separate what is American from what is Christian. Wow. And so I think that becomes problematic. This feels like it takes us in a different direction, but things that are happening in the United States or in other countries, but since we're in the US, when we talk about it, policies with immigration, for example, um, if we don't have a multi-ethnic, multicultural context, when we hear, hear about things about immigration, rarely will we look over to a, a brother or sister in our own church sitting in the pews and say, this affects you. We're disconnected from what's going on and we, it convolutes our understanding and conflates what we believe as Americans versus what we believe as Christians and what we believe as citizens on earth as what we believe as citizens in heaven. Two, two scriptural foundations, one's a why and one's a, a how. And uh, uh, Mark DeMoss hit on the why. John 17, uh, the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's prayer is not our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. But the Lord's prayer is John 17, that they may be one as we are one so that they may know that that you are re real. And so uh, uh, this idea of unity is the calling card uh, for spirituality. Mm. Uh, and we've talked about cultural diversity, but we also hinted at uh, ideological diversity. And we live in this siloed society where people are branching off and, you know, uh, if I'm this, then I can't be that. And if I'm this, then I can't talk to those people or this. And when you have Democrats and Republicans who are part of the same church and you have people uh, that are liberal and conservative, they're a part of the same church. And you see all kinds of diversity come together ideologically because it is the call of God then all of a sudden you've got something of which the entire community wants to sit up, take notice and be a part of. So John 17 is the why. Mm. And then first Corinthians nine is the how uh, mm. Paul said, uh, uh, I become all things to all people that by all means I might be able to save some. And, and I, I tell people, I believe Paul would have been a great dominoes player. Uh, mm. Most people don't know that dominoes is a game. Uh, they think dominoes are just tiles that are to be, sat up in a row and then knocked over. But there's actually a game that's played with dominoes. It, it's a matching game. You get a certain number of dots on your on on your tile. You're to match it with uh, someone else who has the certain number of dots on their tile. And Paul would have made a great dominoes player. He said, I find people who are not like me and I become like them so that I might be able to share the gospel with them. Hmm. And that's been our strategy. Uh, so, uh, I tell our, our people all the time, deference to any culture embraces all cultures. Hmm. When we defer to another culture group and we become like them for the purpose of sharing the gospel, uh, we have ministry with rather than ministry to. Hmm. Uh, we're not just ministering to this culture group. We're coming alongside of them to minister with them. Hmm.
And so that has become our how. But what are some practical steps that you've taken or that you would encourage churches um, or even individuals, if that's a, another way to look at it? But what are some practical steps to, to kind of start this journey? Uh, there are 57 different language groups at our local high school. Uh, when our mayor made that statement at the mayor's state of the city address, I challenged her and I said, I'm pretty sure that you misspoke, uh, mayor. I, I don't think there's 57 language groups in the world. Mm. And she goes, no, there are 57 language groups at our local high school. Mm. And so we're trying to figure out how do you cross 57 different language groups uh, and and share the gospel in that capacity? And I I, I just share deference to any culture, embraces all cultures. So we began to find what are the uh, largest non-English speaking homes uh, that we could share the gospel with. Mm. And we began to rank those. No, number one uh, was Spanish speakers. Uh, mm -hmm. Number two was Korean speakers. Number three were Mandarin Chinese speakers. Number four, Vietnamese. Mm. And one by one, we have sought after uh, someone to be a interpreter for us to interpret in live interpretation on Sunday mornings, our services in that language group. And we also provide the sermon notes and the bulletin in that language group. And so we embrace that language group. So what has happened is, is that we have multi-generational families where grandma and grandpa who speak almost no English are able to come and be able to hear uh, the the message translated into their native language. Uh, parents who are first generation in the United States who speak English, but are very loyal to grandma and grandpa. And then children who most of them do not speak the native language of their family, but speak English and oftentimes become the translator for their own family. And so my wife teaches down in our children's department and the younger you go in our church, the more diverse it becomes. In our children's department, it's about 85% uh, non-Anglo. Uh, so, so we have multi-generational families who are able to worship in the same church and have their needs met accordingly. Mm -hmm. how, how are you doing that in the main service? I'm sorry, Hank. How do you do that in the main, in your main service? Do they have earphones or that you're translating? How do you do that? Uh, we look like the United Nations, and that's actually where I got the original idea from. Uh, but we have an old sound booth that's up in the balcony, like in most Southern Baptist churches used to be uh, uh, created back in the day before they found out that sound booths really don't belong in the balcony. They belong on the floor level. And so uh, we move the sound booth to the floor level and then we repurpose the old sound booth into a state of the art interpretation center. Hmm. It's got uh, four booths in it. Uh, that uh, we have an interpreter in there, has a headset on, they're able to listen to me or listen to the service live. And then they speak through a microphone and people are able to check out a headset uh, with a frequency to be able to catch that particular language group uh, in, during the service. When they receive that, they also receive a copy of the bulletin, a copy of the sermon notes in, the, in that particular language. Uh, that's called our Language Resource Center. We also have Bibles in 35 different languages mm -hmm. with a sign that says, if you don't own a Bible, keep it. Uh, you're welcome to borrow it. But if you don't own it, please keep it. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll replenish it uh, so that people are able to, to make that initial contact in their native language. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a very practical um, 
principle at the how level that'll inform everything on the what, but um, it's the difference. The practical thing in terms of intentionality here that I want to share is uh, what it means to be to accommodate people and in terms of diversity and to build a healthy multi-ethnic church. It's done through accommodation and not assimilation. Most people want a diverse church. Many, many churches throughout the country, if you went to the front door, met their greeters, met their pastor, they'd say, oh, we welcome anyone here in this church. We love all people. We'd never turn any way, turn anybody away because of uh, them being different than us, whatever us is, right? So they, they'd state that, and they sincerely believe that in their heart that they uh, would welcome anyone uh, to worship here, to be a part of the community. Uh, that said, in practice, they really haven't thought deeply about what it is they mean, because when they say that, what they really mean is we welcome anyone who's not like us as long as they like it the way we do things. Okay, now that's really what they mean. They don't even know they mean that. Assimilation is best described by Soong Cha Ra, a friend of mine, uh, long-term engaged in these kinds of conversations and work over the past 25 or more years. But assimilation is when we ask the other essentially to check his or her culture at the door. Right. Accommodation is when the majority culture, the, the, the powers that be in a majority or homogeneous uh, church, they begin to shift and form and practice the way the church operates to accommodate the other. As Mark has done, he began to incorporate other languages. He's paid price to do that. He's paid money to do that. He gets the headsets. He sets it up. It's a lot of work involved, but he's accommodating diverse cultures. He's not just assimilating diverse cultures. And of course, it's accommodation through which you build healthy multi-ethnic churches. I referenced Soong Cha Ra. This is why I say he's great on this, because here's what assimilation is. It's a salad bowl. You got lettuce, tomato, cucumber, peppers, you know, you got all these diverse ingredients in the bowl, but then the American church pours ranch sauce over the whole thing. That's assimilation. <laughs> so you taste the tomato, it tastes like ranch sauce. You taste the lettuce, it tastes like ranch sauce. You taste the cucumber, it tastes like ranch sauce. That's assimilation. Accommodation is get rid of the sauce. Mm, interesting. We, we taste the tomato, we taste the tomato. We taste the lettuce, we taste the lettuce. And this is exactly what Paul prayed for us in Ephesians chapter 3 when he prayed that we would know the height, the breadth, the length, the depth of God's love. It's in the context of the manifold wisdom of God being displayed through the church. The word manifold in Koine Greek means multicolored. Look it up. This is exactly what he's talking about. And he's basically saying in our language today, Maybe the blacks have the height of God's love, but they don't have the length, the breadth, and the width. Maybe the Koreans, they got the width of God's love, but they don't have the height, the breadth, the length. Maybe the whites, you see what I'm saying? Each people group contributes something mm -hmm. like a prism to this beautiful expression of the love of God for all people, the Imago Dei that Alex referenced earlier. And Paul wants this church to experience the textures, the layers, the prism when you spin it so you can feel and experience this beautiful picture of God love for all people, not just some. He prays that we would experience that. And that is accommodation, done through accommodation, not assimilation. When we uh, chose to go under King of Kings community, Jerusalem, King of Kings ministry around the world and become this Israeli plant, um, one of the requirements is that we occasionally have Hebrew music um, in with our music. And we're kind of a crossbreed between a messianic church and a non-denominational. We sort of meet right there in the middle. And so we were trying to include um, Hebrew worship and I could not get 
Um, my my worship leader uh, was an African American man, and he I just couldn't get him to do it. He was just like, I am not going to do it. And finally, to the point where he was just like, I'm not your guy because I just won't. I just can't. I'm not going to learn Hebrew. I don't want to sing Hebrew. I don't want to do that kind of music. You know, and I don't mean that to criticize him. I'm saying, you know, I had a very interesting kind of a different shift where he didn't want to embrace that. And I've had a very hard time uh, just getting, you know, that kind of concept to happen, um, even though that's, you know, so it's sort of different than sort of like you were talking about, you know, the pastor that doesn't want to move. Sometimes people have trouble as well, not just the pastors, but the people making the adjustments. I have found that all virtually 90, 95% of objections fall under one of three categories. There, people are going to say they don't like it, it's too hard, or it's not natural. Right. Okay. So I when think you, all three were said in my situation. <laughs> so, and most, and so you think about, well, how do you, how do you respond to that as a leader? How do you bring them on board? Of course, everything begins and ends as we've been discussing it with theology. But in terms of that, if someone says, well, I just don't like it, like I don't like gospel music, you know, uh, based on their past experience, personality preference, you hold up a Bible and you say, where in this book is it about what you like? Right. Okay. Right. I thought we're supposed to align the church, the vision of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, et cetera, not get the church to align to my preference, et cetera. That's number one. Number two, somebody's going to say uh, it's not natural, right? People, people, birds of a feather flock together. You know, you want to eat the same kind of food, speak the same language. You're very comfortable. You let your hair down, so to speak. Yeah. And I, I'd say in my response, yeah, I totally get that. Of course, it's natural to want to be people like you. I get that. But when we signed up for this Christian thing, I thought it was about living in the supernatural. Right. So you're calling people to get above and beyond what is natural to live in the supernatural. And then the third one, of course, is it's just too hard. Well, again, we turn to the Bible. Where in the book is there a pass for degree of difficulty? And of course, it doesn't exist. Aren't you glad that our Savior didn't say no to the difficult challenge of crossing cultures to be the peacemaker, the Prince of Peace, to unite us in reconciliation with God the Father, as well as with one another? Love God, love your neighbor. So these I have found are the three primary objections of the laity, and these are ways in which we can respond to bring them on board. One of the things that pains me tremendously, especially about my my own denomination, uh, is that uh, uh, we take great pride in having socioeconomic and and uh, culture centric church plants uh, mm -hmm. all across America uh, that uh, oftentimes are 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 not viable and, and aren't sustainable. Uh, because uh, they're not reaching all kinds of people or all people groups. Uh, they're intended to be very uh, myopic in their vision. A size may matter. How can you accomplish everything that we said we wanted to do and also be a larger church? I, I, part of the challenge may be that this works when you're smaller. One practical suggestion may be that you you multiply sites that are all relatively small. And they're never going to be very thriving financially, uh, but can meet the needs. Um, that may be a practical step. But from what I've seen, the larger churches, they're trying to accommodate and work with minority groups because uh, the numbers are so small. Um, and you're going to be perhaps one of the challenges will be because you're just too big. Um, so that's something to consider, practically speaking, even fundamentally, the way how things are done in English and then translated into other languages, as opposed to the holy language of Korean, for example, <laughs> um, and then translated into other languages. Um, mm -hmm. That's just not, it's almost inconceivable in the American church. Not my job to pose a question back, but I will. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> discomfort the linchpin by which we use? Could everybody be a little bit uncomfortable? How you get people to feel comfortable is to help them understand that just like they're uncomfortable, everyone's a little bit uncomfortable. And that's why you can feel comfortable because we're all a little bit uncomfortable. Everybody's giving up a little bit of something to make this thing work. Nobody gets everything they want. Uh, just like Paul talks about in Philippians 2. We can't just think about our own people group's interests, but we also have to think about the people, the other people group's interests as well. And I don't think it gets any better than that. In fact, I think the tension is where Christ lives. Can I just jump in and say one other piece that it's a, a, a practical reminder for all of us. Hmm. In the midst of that tension, especially when you see all the different philosophies, political ideologies, and cultures, you want someone from the outside looking in saying, there is no reason for all of these different disparate types of people to gather, save for the blood of Jesus. Yeah. I mean, that's where you want to come back to say, that's the only reason these people would ever be together. On my best days, I say that. And on my worst days, I say that, you know, <laughs> on my best days, I'm like, man, only God's holding us together. It's beautiful. Mm. On my worst days, I'm like, oh, only God's holding together. So I, I think part of the thing I want to add a little bit is um, I think this is an important conversation. I think we've been able to ground it in not just personal narratives, experience and work and scripture. Um, but I think the one thing that that kind of drew me into this work has been historically in America, we're really bad at this. You know, it's so funny to me when people say that, like, oh, man, we're we're more divided than ever. I'm like, are we? Because there's a time where you didn't think I was a person. You know, now you're just mad because I said something you don't agree with. Like, there was a time where you didn't think I was a person. Like, I don't necessarily know. People are like, well, it's just so divisive now. It's like, yeah, you like Martin Luther King. He was polling in the 20s. You know, like it didn't matter if you're a liberal, black, white, no one really liked him that much towards the end there. Right. Um, so I always push back on those narratives. And I think that's um, another thing that that kind of grounds it in where we are here in America. Um, my personal story is I was born in Liberia. Um, I was born in a country that was founded by former slaves. Right. Like I remember hearing my family tradition was my my great 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 grandfather in 1878. Um, was a, a former slave, earned his freedom, fought in the Civil War, went through Reconstruction. And then when American South decided that there was too many Black people in legislature, um, the rise of the KKK, the taking away of Black people's rights, um, not being able to worship together, he literally sold everything and got on a boat and went to the unknown, which was Africa, right? Got his whole family and went. So, so I come from this tradition, when we talk about this history of America, it is not 400 years ago. For me, literally, it begins in 1878 with a, a, a black man from the South who says, you know what, this whole American thing still not working out, right? Um, but when I came to America, one of the things that I realized, though, is that, you know, we have all these denominations and we might have all these different levels of theology to disagree with. But the one thing that was super uniting, if you will, was how separated we were. Um, we have never let our Christianity um, touch, you know, all of our life in that our government can institute these policies that the church might never speak into, but we were either benefiting from or allowing. And I started going to these churches where, um, yeah, we were just divided by race. And, and so part of what I was formed in some of these white churches was, well, you're different. You know, you could be Martin Luther King, you know, like content of character. 
And, and I think that was great. And I believe that until I started facing blatant racism from Christians. So I think when we talk about some of these things, you know, it's not just that 80% of our churches are people who look like us, is that people who believe in the same Jesus are doing some terrible things to people who don't look like them on the regular, you know? Um, so part of my coming to a multicultural church here in Harrisburg was at a time when I basically said, I'm done with Christians. And what I meant by that, and this might be hard for some people to hear, but I was done with white Christians. You know, I had white Christians who looked me in the eye and says, you know, I know you're great and I love you and all, but like, I just don't think that like, you know, you and my daughter can date or you and my son should be friends, you know, like I, I mean, to my face, right. It wasn't that long ago. Um, I had people say and do these terrible things. And for me, I got to a point where I'm like, you know what? America does have 400 years of terrible history. So what can change it? You know, um, our church in Harrisburg, maybe about 20, 25 years ago, um, decided that, you know, maybe it's time to get out of our city. Um, and it wasn't because we, we just realized that we were really bad at diversity, you know, and for a lot of people, they assume we're a diverse church because we live in the heart of a city. Well, we used to be in a neighborhood of row houses. So I don't know if you're familiar with North American cities, but row houses means literally attached on both sides, right? So we're at the corner. We had about seven parking spots, 40 houses on our side and 50-50 all around us, uh, maybe a 98% African-American Black neighborhood, and no one was coming to our church. What can we do? So for us, a lot of this conversation that we're having is, is the work that we've been doing. You know, We spent a year praying that like, hey, God, we don't have all the answers, but we know this is your heart. We know this is our neighborhood and we know we're really bad at it. So please help. You know, And it was a year of that. And then all the things that we shared, the practical steps, you know, um, I hear a bunch of the, the people on the call talk about equity. You know, you can have a lot of ranch, even though you got a lot of different um, uh, things in your salad, right? So we have to really look at what does it mean to have diversity in leadership? Like, what does that actually mean? Who are our stakeholders? Do people feel they have a voice here? You know, what does it mean to, to actually teach about this stuff from a biblical point, point of view? What does music look like? You know, in every church, music is a problem. I, I know I'm a pastor and I'm probably not supposed to say that, right? But in every church, music is like where civil wars happen. But I think that the kind of thing that led us was was relationships. You know, we really had to learn our neighborhood and then we really had to elevate the voice of the people in our neighborhood. And I think that this is the heart of God. And I think this is where I'll end, you know, in the sense of, I don't think this is a new thing to God, but I also think this is a new thing in America. You know, I think that God has tried. When people say, why we have 80% of churches white, it's not that God hasn't tried. You know, after the the Civil War, you know, the forming of the black church was because white people said, well, can you worship in the back? Actually, can you make that the balcony? Actually, can you go outside? You know, I think God's tried. And, and there's a lot of these former slaves who wanted to worship together and weren't given that opportunity. Azusa, I mentioned earlier, you know, there was people who said, man, there was no color line here. It was people just worshiping together and it was beautiful. And then racism happened there. You know, the civil rights movement was another time. I, I just think God has tried, God has tried, God has tried. And my hope for us is that as we live in a country that's increasingly diverse in families, in schools, in neighborhoods, in cities, in suburbs, are we willing to finally listen to God's call? Let's do this. You've talked about how many times God has tried, Hank, but I think it's time that we keep trying and then we have some success. I left it all together on the screen on purpose today because we're going to end right here.
as one big unit of, of seven people here that look totally different. I thanks to all the guests and your expertise. It was really such a pleasure to get to meet you and, and hear your perspectives and your expertise on this, on this important topic. And we hope to have you back. And stay with us. We'll keep doing these conversations and so much more here on The Full Life.